Okay, so we are still doing our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. This is the 118th lesson in that series. As you know, we think it'll finish out about 150. And I did want to comment on just a couple things. Uh, you can see the title at the top. We're on element eight of the eight. So uh, coming down the home stretch, although you might recall that we uh, skipped to element eight right in the middle of element seven. And we will go back and finish element seven, the Lord willing. Uh, we just decided it wasn't the best subject to cover at the beginning of the school year. So um, the reason we would go into a, uh, a gospel series this deeply, just to, re to remind us of some things, is there has been a, a, a little over a 150-year trend in American Christianity, uh, especially among Bible-believing Christian Christians who follow the scripture and have a high view of scripture to reduce the gospel both for the sake of communicating it more clearly to those who are outside of, the, of Christ and outside the church and basically because some of the major elements of say Christology some things about the incarnation principle and so forth. Lots of, lots of major elements of the gospel have been sort of lost and reduced and simplified. And the gospel has become, we think of it as something that we use for unbelievers to get them to pray a sinner's prayer. But the gospel is also for Christians for daily living. You have to reorient yourself according to the gospel every day. There is only resurrection life on the other side of the cross. And uh, all progress in the Christian life is by grace working through faith. And so um, I wanted to just point out a couple highlights. Um, in, in Roman numeral one are the eight elements. Yesterday I went to a play of, uh, uh, at Cedarville University that was... Uh, excellently done. It was the Diary of Anne Frank. And uh, as difficult as things are, you know, I was fighting back crying from, uh, from the time I was reading the bulletin before the play uh, till, the, till, the, till after we had left and we're driving to a restaurant afterwards and uh, composed myself in the car kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, as difficult as things like that are, one of the trends of modern Christianity is to minimize the depth of man's fall. And we, you know, we can often see depravity in others, but one of God, the works of God's grace is to see it in ourselves. And uh, to, to not be always taking the speck out of our brother's eye when in fact we need to focus on the log in our own eye. And so um, one of the things that antinomianism does, uh, which we covered in... Um, element three of this series is it leads to uh, a kind of view of morality that the big sins are you know maybe drunkenness or smoking cigarettes or something like this uh, instead of rebellion against God pride uh, our our independence our uh, are tr trying to keep God at a distance and so forth and so one of the things that God has to help us with is to see the depth of our own fall. And to the degree we see that, then we're ready to receive his grace and power. 
uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you get with Christians and, you know, we are kind of tempted in the church parking lot to immediately begin to posture that I'm a pretty good Christian and I did this good this week and that. When you ought to just say like, hi, I'm a loser. How are you doing this week? You know, like God's grace is uh, sufficient. So um, I, I did want to just use that going to that play as an opportunity just to remind us that, you know, you don't, you don't expose your uh, three- or four-year-old kids to uh, who the Nazis were or who the Bolsheviks were and what they did, but you, uh, you also need to know that by the time you're a teenager. You know, you need to know how, just how far man has fallen and just what man is capable of. And, uh, and you need to know that that's in us. Our own sin nature is, is a much bigger problem than we think it is. We don't just need a little religion and a little churching up. We need a radical transformation. We need to be made into new creatures. We need the, uh, the old nature to completely be killed. And we need to be born again into a complete new life. We don't need Jesus to come into our life and just do a little dusting and uh, rearrange the furniture. We, he has to up knock the whole house down and uh, build it up from the foundations up again. So the gospel is for that. And, um, you know, a 150-part series on the eight essential elements of the gospel is not actually out of line for Christians because the gospel is what we need to meditate in every day. Um, if you talk to any of the people on the leadership team of our church, you'll, you will know that John and myself try to, in the songs... And in the messages, have them be very gospel-centered every time. Uh, we always want to think about the implications of every subject in terms of the gospel. All right, so lately we've been on element eight, which is called Maturing in Jesus Christ by Growing in Grace. Uh, the whole front page of the first page is kind of review. We, uh, the main point I want to emphasize there is when we looked at Grace and perspective, and grace defined and reevaluated. Today, uh, every kind of Western Christian, Catholic or Protestant, liberal, liberal Protestants, conservative Protestants, would all define grace as God's undeserved favor. That is a correct definition, but it is about three percent of what grace is. It is uh, it's a step in the right direction, but grace is God's divine empowerment. And it's in his God's divine enablement. So it's more than his forgiving your sins and accepting you in Christ. It's everything he empowers us with by his word, by his spirit, and by the church, the three main delivery systems of grace, to become what you were meant to be before man fell. And your God is actually calling you as a disciple of Christ to embrace the crosses that would cause you to be who you were meant to be from all eternity before uh, sin, <laughs> what a, you know, uh, both your own sins and the things that people have done toward you, uh, the brokenness that's in this world, uh, all the lust and, and so forth, the American diet, whatever, whatever is uh, causing you problems, God has full grace in Christ to restore you. And um, that is why we always want to be Christ-centered in our study of the scriptures, 
because he is the ultimate and perfect example of what it means to be a human being. And until our life looks like our, his, 1 John 2, 6, he says, if anyone claims that he knows Christ, then he, he ought to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. And that means er, you can't, in modern times, dismiss certain parts. What we do is we go, well, that means like Christ's attitude toward this or that. <laughs> Instead of, no, it means everything about Christ. Mission, uh, his attitude, his love for his father, his knowledge of the word, his way of making disciples, his healings, his miraculous life. We, if anyone claims he knows Jesus, his life should look like Jesus. In fact, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, is be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to be able to say, you want to know Jesus? Hang out with us. If you hang out with us, you'll know Jesus. Because we are a bunch of little mini Jesuses walking around. And uh, so we probably have a ways to go. At least I do. I don't know about you. And we probably need to stay gospel-centered every day. Now, uh, so I'm going to skip what we've been looking at uh, in recent weeks. Jump all the way down to Roman numeral 4 at the bottom of the first page. Last week, we began to look at the concept of the delivery systems of God's grace. I always use the analogy that when you go and get a glass of water in your house, you turn on the water and water comes out, and you don't think much about how complicated the delivery system that brought that water to you was. And I'm not going to go all the way back to the evaporation over the oceans and, and the jet stream and everything like that. We'll just go to once the water has fallen from the skies and is in ponds and streams and creeks and underground streams and so forth, some city had to harvest that water. And in some cases, they cleaned it up to some degree. One-third of cities in America meet minimum federal standards of, of water quality. Two-thirds do not. Uh, so that whether it's actually good for you or not, that's another debate, but it's been pumped up to a water tower. And that water tower has a bunch of pipes coming down from it into the, uh, into the ground, traveling below the streets and into the basement of houses and commercial buildings and dorm rooms and so forth, and back up through the walls, through hidden pipes. And it, and, uh, it takes advantage of the principle that water always seeks its own level. So when you open the valve, as long as your sink is lower than the water tower, the water comes out. Now... Grace, likewise, all grace comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, which was one step of God's grace, but grace and truth were fully realized in Jesus Christ. And all grace comes from encountering Jesus in spiritual, tangible, concrete, relational ways. The more we experience Jesus, the more he imparts his grace to us. And that grace does not come in some mysterious way where we got to go, where's the grace? Here, grace. Here, grace. Let me find some grace. You know, is it under here? <laughs> where is it? The grace comes through an inextricably, inextricably intertwined system of God's word, God's spirit, and God's church. And therefore, all the spiritual warfare that every Christian faces 
is to twist your understanding or reduce your involvement with God's word, God's spirit, and God's church. So most Christians today, they say uh, if you study evangelical theology, you will see that most evangelicals don't have much of a doctrine of the church. Church is something we're consumers of, and we go and hear a good speech or two on Sundays, and we sing a few songs, and we have the church component of our life. But church is the body of Christ. It's not a component of our life. It's a way of life. That's why biblical churches are communities. And the Holy Spirit is not something that we just receive in the, in when we pray the sinner's prayer that regenerates us, but the Holy Spirit is someone we come to know and we grow in a relationship with and we're empowered with and filled and refilled and refilled because we leak. And until your life looks like the life of the Holy Spirit, of the, of the prophets of the Old Testament and, and Christ and the apostles of the New Testament, you yet have not experienced the Holy Spirit the way God wants you to experience the Holy Spirit. And why that's important is because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, and he's the representative of the Father and the Son. He came to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And God the Father and God the Son live in heaven. And we experience God the Father and God the Son through the Holy Spirit. That's why many evangelical teachers are now trying to wake the church up and say, wait, he's the forgotten member of the Trinity. The fact that we don't know and experience and, and and we shut out the Holy Spirit, is a problem, a real problem. Because the Word and the Spirit work together. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, now understand who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were people who by the age of 12 had memorized uh, the first five books of the Bible and most of the rest of the Old Testament. And to get, like Paul, to be invited to be a disciple of Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of his day, that would have meant that Paul would have memorized the whole Old Testament by the age of 12 and the commentaries called the Midrash and the Mishnah. That would be equivalent to uh, Bethany memorizing her ESV study Bible, introductions to the books, notes, everything, <laughs> by the age of 12. And we say we're Bible-believing Christians. But that's actually how Jews in Jesus' day lived, especially in the northern part of Israel called Galilee, where Jesus was from. And, the, and uh, Jews, Paul was not even from Israel. He was from a Roman province in a city called Tarsus that's approximately where Syria is today. And uh, so um, historically, people, the book, took the book much more seriously than what we do today. And so what we're, you know, if there's any one goal of Grace Christian Fellowship, it would be to encourage you to rethink your approach to how much Bible you know and how much Bible you're going to study. I have no bigger goal than that because you'll find Christ in every page. So last week, we started in on the word of his grace, Acts 20, 32, when Paul was speaking for the last time to the Ephesian elders, and he's trying to impart the most important things he can say to them. He's weeping and giving his heart. He says, now I commend you to the word of God, 
the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. The Greek actually is, uh, the verb tense really means those who are be, being, being sacrificed, sanctified. Not sacrificed, although that's part of sanctification. <laughs> uh, be being sanctified. In other words, you are sanctified, and you're being sanctified, and you will be sanctified, and that is what God is always doing in your life, which means to be set apart to God. He is taking the motivations out of your heart that compete with God, and the attitudes, and the lacks of understanding, and the mindsets, and everything that's hindering your perfect fellowship with God, he's trying to set you apart from that. And the word of his grace is the primary tool to do that. Now, flip over to page two, and we're going to, page two, three, and four are what I'm going to try to get into today. And I'm going to uh, look at results of a lifestyle of continual searching, studying, meditating on, and applying and speaking the scripture. What, and these are all just scriptures on scriptures. This is what the Bible says about Scripture in terms of if you live a lifestyle of continually reading, continually meditating, continually studying, continually searching out, continuing applying, and continue to speak to one another Scripture, this is what will start to grow out of that. This is what th that kind of sowing of seed will produce. Today, tomorrow, and for the rest of eternity. Now, those of you who know our handouts, hopefully will notice there's a lot of overlap between the rest of this teaching and a handout we used. And when we start discipling anyone, one of the first studies we take them through is called the Bible on the Importance of Bible Study. And we have 14 major categories, that, that, uh, of which I think I took 12 of them for this teaching and uh, scriptures about what scripture says about scripture. If you're going to start to understand why the Bible is important, let's start to, uh, with why the Bible says it's important. Okay? So, the first one is that it yields growth and the blessings of God. Now, when you talk about the blessing of God, it's a most misunderstood concept today, so I want to just discuss that for a minute. There is a thing called the prosperity gospel, Unfortunately, it's even more popular in, in poor and developing nations than it is in America. And it kind of has a magic approach to the blessing of God, and worse than a magic, because ma magic, always, magic always involves, uh, and witchcraft always involves manipulation and control. So it's kind of like if we pray the right way and we say the right things and so forth, we can make God do the promises of his word. It's kind of backwards. And so, uh, you know, God always heals. God always, he wants to bless you, but that's not, uh, you know, like, finding, like in the prosperity gospel, God wants you to have a Lexus or a Cadillac instead of the rust buckets that most of us drive. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but he doesn't really want you to get it through high, high values of education and attaining certifications and degrees or work ethics and and uh, working your way up in a business and frugality and 
uh, savings and investments and hard work and so forth. It, it just He wants you to get it by quoting verses and, beating, and manipulating him into blessing you. Well, if you study the whole concept from Genesis to Revelation, there is an atmosphere that God wants you to progressively enter into as a Christian called the blessing of God. And God wants to bless your family. He wants to bless your coming in and your going out. He wants to make you fruitful in terms of reproducing the life of Christ into others. He wants to make you uh, filled with joy and so forth. But none of this promises no suffering and no difficulties and no crosses. In fact, it guarantees that you'll have them. And every temptation and every difficult situation is actually the key that unlocks the doors of Christ-likeness. Every son of God has to be scourged. He scourges every son he receives. To be without God's chastisements and God's testings and trial is to be a bastard child, as the King James says in Hebrews 12. It's to be an illegitimate child, as the more modern translations say, trying to soften it and make it uh, more socially acceptable. It's, you know, it's the not, not taking, you know, today we, you know, most people who've been born after 1945 have not ex- seen much difficulty. And most of us even raise our children and, and treat ourselves way too softly. Life has hardships, and you might as well love your kids enough to embrace them, to, to teach them how to embrace hard disciplines. Most of us need more steel in our soul. There is an aspect of spiritual warfare. God is calling you, son or daughter, to be a Marine, so to speak, in his kingdom. So there is kind of an atmosphere, and as a pastor, you, re- you learn how to recognize it in people. There's kind of an a- atmosphere where this person is really starting to enter into the favor of God, and that will affect things like the emotional health of your children. It will affect things like your vocational calling. It will affect th- all kinds of things in your life. And, but to get there, you have to walk with Christ. He won't let you be there with idols in your heart. One of the first things God began to deal with me, I always wanted a son named John Paul. And God, gave, because I had a little brother named John Paul, and his, his death when I was 17 and he was 11, was a big part of my coming to Christ. My first Christian speech was at his funeral. And uh, six people came forward, and I'd, I'd never even heard of an altar call, but I gave one. <laughs> and uh, six people came forward to receive Christ, and I started a Bible study with them and so forth. But, you know, the first thing God dealt with me when he blessed me with Carla Weiss, or who became Carla Hale, and then with John Paul Weiss, is these are my kids, not yours. And don't you dare think you own them. Because I own them, and you're called to be a steward of their life. And don't you dare smother them with some, the kind of love that protects them from hardship and protects them from me. 
Let me have my ways with them. Every parent has to go through that. So many parents kind of protect their kids from the dealings of God. Don't do that. You know, my kids would come home and go, the teacher gave me a D in spelling. And I'd be, you know, most parents will, these days will go into the school and raise heck with the teachers and everything like that. And I always said, like, good. <laughs> and I hope you got beat up by some bullies on the way home from school. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, when I asked my one son, when he was in seventh grade, cut class. And the assistant principal called me to ask me if he could give him detention. And I said, give him detention? Give him two detentions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could... And, uh, you know, and if you want, have them wash your car, wax it, and clean your office. <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I cut class but when I was a kid, but, you know, you, if you get caught, you pay the price, right? So, uh, <laughs> not, my, my, the, my football coach had me in his office one day, Joe Vanini, and I got cut class, and he goes, Greg. What's the deal with you? You cut class again. What, what's going on? And I said, well, Mr. Vanini, I was running late for class. And when, you get, when you're late for class, you get a detention. If you cut class, if you don't get caught, you get zero detentions. If you get caught, you get two detentions. So I already had one detention. I just decided to go for double or nothing. <laughs> that made perfect sense to a ninth grader. You know, <laughs> Seemed quite logical when you're a ninth grader, right? Oh, man, did he get upset? <laughs> double or nothing! Double or nothing! <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think he blew a gasket. But, uh... <laughs> anyway, there is an atmosphere called the blessing of God. But by many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. And there's just not enough emphasis on trials and crosses. Every trial is a wonderful opportunity. That's why schools still have tests, even with all the great inflation that's gone on since the 1850s that's been a continual trend in the watering down of standards, we still have quizzes and tests. So let's look at some of these. Uh, Joshua 1, 8, 9, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, what do we talk about when we're together? Especially in October, it's hard not to talk about college football <laughs> and uh, the baseball playoffs. But you shall meditate on it. The word meditate is actually comes from a cow chewing his cud. And it's actually a word picture. It's supposed to give you this image. Cows have two stomachs. And they, they take the cud and they chew it and chew it and they get it all full of saliva and slime and dripping out of their mouth. And it's kind of gross, right? It's supposed to be. And then they swallow it. And then they digest it for a while. But guess what? Then they throw it back up and chew it some more. <laughs> Mangle it and, you know, and so forth and get it all gross and slimy and everything else. Then they swallow it again. And eventually it makes a cow pie <laughs> in, the, in the end. 
And it's why your beef tastes so great. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what? And the Bible says to meditate on God's word, it's actually saying, saying do that with it. Chew on it a while. Medit- you know, roll it over in your mind, in your heart. Ask God questions about it. Cross-reference. Look up the Greek. Call your theological friends and ask them, what do you think this verse means? Let's talk about this theological concept. Meditate on it. Like, eat it. Swallow it. Chew it. Chew it. Chew it. Digest it. Throw it back up. Redigest it. <laughs> That's actually what the, what the Old Testament means whenever it says to meditate on God's word. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. People wonder why I don't like to watch much news. Honestly, the news media's outlets of this country have been pretty much taken over by anti-Christian worldviews, and I don't really want to hear all that crap all the time. I really don't. I want to delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law I meditate day and night, and I know enough about pop culture that I'm, I have a serious plan to change it. It's called the church and restoring the church. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, he chews the cud day and night and he will be in the blessing of God is what verse 3 means of Psalm 1, 1 through 3 John 8 31 and 32 I'm going up and down on, on the, I'm on page 2 the first point uh, top half of the page bouncing around Psalm 8 Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, so if you've believed in Jesus, this applies to you. Salvation is by faith, working for it through grace. So if you're a Christian today, this is a verse that Jesus spoke to you. He didn't speak this to non-believers. He spoke this to Christians. And he said, if you continue in my word, then, you'll, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, hopefully, John mentioned the concept of re- reading the reverse negative last week. Hopefully, you know how to read that now. So what he's saying is, if you don't continue in my word day and night, you're a false disciple. You're not a disciple. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples, as opposed to false disciples of which we have millions today. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Why do you think Christians are so bound up? You know, estimates are that anywhere from 35 to 65% of men that are sitting in Bible-believing Christian pews are internet pornography addicted. Is that what the freedom that Christ died to give us? You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, the Young's Literal Translation, instead of continue, says remain. King James and RSV say continue. NIV says hold to. ESV and New, and New King James say abide in my word. The Greek is one of my favorite Greek words, meno. It appears a lot of times in the New Testament, and Jesus uses it especially in the book of John when he says abide in the vine. 
and it means to stay in a given place. Stay. Stay. Like, just live there. Dwell in. You know, relate to. Be there. Relate with expectancy. It's a state or it's an abiding. It's a dwelling. It's an enduring. It's a remaining in. Live there. Live in my word. Abide in me, Jesus says, because he's the vine. Like, live in my presence. Martha and Mary, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, abiding in his word, and there was a lot of housework to be done. You know, I, I don't know about you, but if Jesus was coming to dinner, frankly, just when some of you are coming to dinner, that means like a whole day of uh, uh, getting Stephen to clean the bathrooms and vacuum <laughs> and, uh, and get ready. <laughs> Thank the Lord for Stephen. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like I can't just let people come over. There's a lot of work to be done for people to come over, right? Martha was all about that. And Mary was sitting at Jesus' word, abiding in his presence. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting. I didn't do the Greek word there, but it means a very strong thing. It means you're so dedicated to it that you're anchored in it in such a way that nothing's going to take you off of that. You're not going to let life situations and circumstances take you away from being continually devoted to the apostles' teaching the breaking of bread, the fellowship, the community, and the prayers. Is that our way of life? Is that our way of life? By the way, the, what does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? At that point, not a single book of the New Testament had been written yet. They were devoted to studying the Old Testament and they were in a process of discovering all the Christ-centered, Christological implications of the Old Testament. This was right after Jesus had appeared to them in Luke 24 and told them that everything about him in, in, this, in Moses, the books of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, which is Jew, the Jewish, what's called Tanaka, uh, everything in the Old Testament was about him. And he had opened their minds to see him in the Old Testament scriptures. Today, I rarely meet a, a Christian uh, who's grown up in Bible-breathing Christianity who's read the old, whole Old Testament. And let alone really learned how to find Christ in every page of it. If you go on our podcast and go under Sermon of the Week, which is usually mostly John's sermons, and go all the way back to the first ones that I think we started posting around 2013, the very first series, John did a series called Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And he, uh, that is a great place to get started with the idea. He, he used 15 different uh, figures in the Old Testament to show how they were foreshadowings or types of Christ and how to find Joseph and Moses and Abraham and everybody else as a type of Christ. All right, uh, Ezra 7.10 is my life's theme verse. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, 
which by the way, first and foremost means the books of Moses. I think if I ever hear one more Christian say that, I don't like reading the Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I think I'll just jump off my roof or something. <laughs> right now I just break down and cry and stuff, like, right in my office. You know, they're like, what are you crying about, Pastor? Uh, someone else just told me they don't like reading certain parts of the Bible. Um, Ezra had set his heart. What have you set your heart to? This needs to be above what you've set your heart. You know, like if you're a young lady that's single and you have a desire for a man for your plan, or uh, if you have a vocational plan, calling or, uh, or anything, all of that's good. If you don't have a man, if you don't have a desire to uh, get married or whatever, maybe you're called to be celibate. I don't know, but probably it's, that's good. It's good to have a vocational calling. It's good to be excited about it and think about it. And, you know, I just, I, I love when I meet people. I just met a couple, actually two or three people this week that love accounting. And I'm always like, thank God that there's people who love accounting. Because, you know, <laughs> that's like the greatest gift of the body of Christ there ever was. Because <laughs> I like to look at the spreadsheets they made. <laughs> I certainly don't want to enter the data, write the checks or, or anything. I just want to look at the spreadsheet. And... Uh, you know, it's good to love all that stuff, but have you set your heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it as a way of life, and to teach it to others? Now, one of the greatest truths, we're about to, uh, in two weeks, we're about to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation with Martin Luther's uh, nailing his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Um, now I lost my train of thought of where I was going with that. Um, what's that? Well, whatever with Luther, I was trying, trying uh, just going with uh, the whole idea of setting your heart to studying the law of the Lord. Oh, that I know what I was doing. Is Ezra was a certain kind of office in the Old Testament. There's four main offices. Guess what office he was? He was a priest, right? Guess what the major truth of the Reformation was? It's called the priesthood of all believers. Guess what? You're a priest. Maybe we should call each other Father this. <laughs> no. Father Daniel. How are <laughs> you doing today, Father Daniel? How, how's your priesthood coming? But a priest is someone who sets his heart to study the law of the Lord, to live by it, and to teach it. Who are you discipling in the words of God? Now, you know, I'm not that concerned that Israel Dickerson is not discipling too many people at age five. <laughs> and, but... You know, the, the, the spiritual is not limited the way the natural is. And I think it's probably okay if you're one, two, or three years in Christ and you haven't led many people to Christ and you're discipling. But today the statistics are is about 85% of Christians have never led someone to Christ or discipled anyone. And that's not what Jesus died to make the church. The church is supposed to be, in, in the natural, when you get to be about 13 years old, 
you have to start taking certain lifestyle steps not to bear children. Call it, wait till you're married. <laughs> but, uh, uh, or you'll have, start having kids all over the place. In the spiritual, it's just not normal to not be having kids all over the place when you've been a Christian for a while. It's not normal. If you've been a Christian, especially if your years are starting to get up into double digits, in other words, 10 or more, and you're not making disciples, there's a problem with your approach to Christ. There really is. Now, the best discipleship is by a community of believers and so forth, but if you think you can't take someone under your wing and, and start to help them grow, uh, and you've been at this more than a few years, that's problematic, very problematic. You know, couples that are having trouble having children go to see doctors about it. And if you're uh, starting to be 7, 10, 12 years in Christ, and you're not bearing a lot of kids, you really need to get some help. You really need to get some pastoral counsel, like, what is the problem here? I'm impotent. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bearing fruit. There's a problem. That's not biblically normative. Jesus said, follow me and you'll become a fisher of men. Now, I'm not condemned about the fact that when I had a guy I was discipling named John Chipotello in Bowling Green, and he was really into fishing a lot. And so... Uh, he would kept saying, come on, go fishing with me. I was like, I don't like fishing. They're all dirty. And no, <laughs> I like aquariums. You can look at the fish. Uh, <laughs> you know, so we're in the Maumee River, and he's trying to teach me how to snag walleye and stuff. And, like, he was an expert at it. Like, he would actually have this technique where he could sort of feel the fish starting to nibble at the, uh, at the hook, and he would know how to, like, get, yank the hook onto the fish, like, and, and then... And he just kept pulling one fish in after another. And he was trying to teach me, and I wasn't doing very well. <laughs> I don't know if I caught any. But that's okay if it's the first time you've gone walleye fishing. But it's not okay if you're 5, 10, 15 years into this thing. It's just not okay. The truth of the matter is people who are really into fishing get a little weird about it. Like they, go, they get fishing magazines. And they go to fishing stores, and they got fishing gear, and they leave hooks in the living room that you step on in your bare feet. <laughs> and they're, you know, and they're like all fishing all the time. And they ruin their budget over it and so forth. Have, are you doing that about being a fisher of men? Are you actually having to have a talk with yourself? You know, I think I've spent so, too much on hospitality and, and, re, and ministering to new people. I bought. I gave away too many Bibles. I, I gotta cut. My, I gotta set a budget up for how many Bibles I give away, because it's getting out of control. Well, that's just the uh, first one, and we're out of time. So we're gonna look at. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'll continue on this. Uh, we haven't. We have a. I don't know if we have this in the rack. I hope we do. Do we have the Bible on the importance of Bible study, like a, as a foundational article? 
Okay, so let's have that by next week. But this is most of the Bible on the importance of Bible study. If I don't get back to this, here's what you do. Read these verses. If you can just take, take a couple minutes to get alone and ask God, do I have as serious of approach to the scriptures as what you want me to have? You know, in Israel, some gathered much, some gathered little. And they all had the right amount. You have a certain amount you're supposed to gather. It might not be the same as, you know, Andy Gerhardt is called to gather. But it's probably not what has become the standards in American Christianity. And if it's not producing the kinds of things this, that this, you know, this handout is all about the things that a, a lifestyle of God's word will produce in your life. So if you don't see these kinds of things coming out of your life, or if there's some of these kinds of things that seem to be blocked or hindered, the first place to, to, to think about it, like just like when you go into the doctor and you're sick and so forth, there's a, uh, an order in which you kind of eliminate, you know, well, let's make sure it's not cancer. Let's make sure it's not diabetes. Let's, you know, let's, and they, you know, they finally determine I'm just going bald because I'm old. <laughs> you know, it's nothing to worry about. It's just baldness. And the scripture says, if a man is bald, it is not uncleanness. It is only baldness. <laughs> Leviticus. But, uh, so, you know, Get along with God and say, do I have the hunger for you and for your word that you want me to have? And does my lifestyle reflect that? And if it doesn't, start memorizing some of these scriptures and ask God to grow your hunger. All hungers can be grown and all hungers can be shrunk. For food, sugar, you name it, all hungers you can grow them and all hungers you can shrink them. But you have to be diligent about it and have a plan. But your hunger for God's word can become out of control. So that you actually have to go like on a scripture diet. I have only been involved with a handful of Christians in, in the 43 years that I've been in Christian community where we had to take them aside and say, you're reading the word so much you're neglecting your algebra homework or whatever or, or your job. I would love to have that problem more often. That's a great problem pastorally to have. Like This guy's into the scriptures and books about the scriptures so much, uh, we need to encourage him to get to work on time or whatever. Um, so we'll get do more of this uh, next week, but I would encourage you to, to ask God to give you a hunger for his word that will cause you to grow in his grace. Amen.